Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. We all desire deep connection. We're wired that way. We're wired for intimacy. But searching for it is difficult. And then even when we find our person and we're caught up in the excitement of falling in love, our journey to true intimacy has really only just begun. And throughout partnership and marriage, our connection ebbs and flows. Sometimes we feel extremely close and at other times we feel estranged and distant from the person with whom we want to feel the most deeply connected. How do we restore true, authentic intimacy? Dr. Steve Call and his wife, Lisa Call, have thought a great deal about this question in their work with couples and as they prepare to write their book, Reconnect. Insights and tools for cultivating meaningful connection in your marriage. Here's a little bit more about Steve and Lisa. Dr. Steve Call is a clinical psychologist specializing in marriage counseling. He's also the author of Reconnect, Tools and Insights for Cultivating Meaningful Connection in Your Marriage. Over his 20 years of working with couples, he has gained significant insight into what contributes to a married couple's distress. His writing and his professional therapeutic work offer expert guidance to couples seeking reconnection and meaningful connection. His work with couples provides insight, awareness, and understanding so that helpful change can occur. Steve also teaches master's level counseling students at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology in Seattle, Washington. In his spare time, Steve enjoys playing on his farm and fly fishing remote rivers in Montana. Steve and his wife, Lisa, have been married for more than 30 years and have three children. Lisa is the founder and director of Farmhouse Montessori. Steve and Lisa have two adult children and one feisty high school junior still at home. Together, they enjoy playing on their farm and on the beaches of the Oregon coast. My conversation with Dr. Steve Call and his wife, Lisa, right after this. When I come across an empowered woman who's all about empowering others, I want to share her journey with you, which is exactly why I invited Brooke Mullen of Sapan to the program in episode 190. Sapan's luxury leather bags and accessories not only look good, they're helping make the world a more beautiful place by honoring the basic human rights of workers throughout their value chain. They've fully embraced a regenerative business model that prioritizes personal empowerment over charity. And human rights is at the heart of all Sapan does. If you're all about this, buy a beautiful bag and uphold human rights life, head over to Sapan.com and use promo code LOVEANDLIFE for 15% off your purchase. That's Sapan, S-A-P-A-H-N.com and promo code LOVEANDLIFE. Dr. Steve and Lisa, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's such a privilege to be a part of this conversation with you. Thanks for inviting us. Absolutely. We're talking about your book, Reconnect, Insight and Tools for Cultivating Meaningful Connection in Your Marriage. 
I always like to ask authors, of course, what was the reason that you decided to write a book? Because it takes a lot of time and energy, mm -hmm. and you obviously believe that you have something that's valuable to add to the conversation about marriage. And you are quite candid in your book. You talk a lot about your personal life your experience with your clients that you work with. And so it's a very compelling and easy read in the sense that there's lots of vignettes of here's what this looks like, practically speaking. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's a valuable addition to the discourse. Tell us a little bit about your journey to getting to the point of writing this book and wanting to share it with the world. Sure. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at Lisa because, you know, my name's on the book, but it, it, it is, uh, significantly, uh, the undercurrent of our of the book of the writing was based upon obviously our marriage, but also my clinical work with couples over the last couple of decades. And there was, I think, a point where both of us were aware of, you know, there there is such a theme, so many themes within the marital therapeutic world uh, that that I just felt like was needed and necessary to write about and put into writing in a way I think that's relatable and in a way I think that uh, it was meant to encourage couples to be aware that they are not alone in this journey. Uh, and so much of the writing is, yes, it's impacted by therapeutic work and for Lisa and I in our own stories and the ways in which we've navigated some of the disconnect and some of the tension and conflict and struggles in our own marriage. But uh, I just think thematically uh, that, that much of what was written and has been written for me, uh, was a reflection of, of what was really needed, what people needed to hear uh, around, I think, these small, subtle shifts that can happen and occur in a marriage that that leads to the possibility of hope and redemption and what marriage is meant to be. So I, it, it was a long uh, process to even get to a point of actually sitting down and writing. I mean, I think Lisa... She didn't just it, twist honestly, my arm. It was I like, think she it was kicked my leg a few times. <laughs> and, and really, it came, it came out of people asking for it. Mm -hmm. You know, we we did several, you know, he was a part of a lot of marriage workshops with the, the Seattle School. The Seattle the School. And then we did some together. And over and over at the end, people would say, do you have this in writing? Is there anywhere we can access this mm -hmm. material? And it was years and years of years. people asking before he finally was able to say, okay, mm -hmm. I'm going to do this. Because it, as you said, it is a lot of work. It is. A, I mean, you know, as a writer, that as an author, that it's just such a vulnerable uh, offering. I mean, you you write something, you let people read, and, and they get to completely <laughs> say yay, nay, good, bad, right, wrong, judgment, whatever. And it, the vulnerability, I think, of writing really was, was part of the struggle was actually take not just taking the time, but putting something into writing that has a sense of finality to it. I, I love conversation. I love interaction. That's the difficult part uh, is I, I would love to interact with people as they read it. Like, wh what are you aware of? What are the questions you have? You know, like that, that was a big part of the resistance, but it finally took Lisa to say, you know, either you write it or I'm leaving. <laughs> Not really, but something like Let's that. Let's do this. Let's do this. So yeah. One of your recommendations for couples, like ultimatums, like do it or right. I'm out. <laughs> yeah, do it or I'm out. I mean, it doesn't work, but it can work. <laughs> right. Well, you are, you know, that theme of vulnerability is so, so salient. And it's, you're very vulnerable, like I mentioned before, with your own marriage and providing that theme of not feeling alone is so key. And, you start the book talking about needing you is hard to do. And mm -hmm. I think that's such a great place to start. And a lot of the women in my community 
are single and looking, they would read a book like yours to say, okay, these are some of the things I want to be in place when I'm dating to sure. know that I'm establishing a solid foundation for a strong marriage and start working these skills out even in the dating and the courtship phase. One of the things I do talk to my women about, and I'd love for you to speak on this, need is a, is a scary word, I think, for a lot of single yes. women. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I caution them if they feel so... I don't like the word needy. That's so pejorative, but mm-hmm. we do need one another. But it, oftentimes, if we're looking to date, to find partnership, to find a spouse, to complete us or to fill a void, which I think is really hard to suss out if we're doing that. Absolutely. So, but we become vulnerable to then being with a partner who may not be good for us just because we've got, okay, I've got this person. So I mm-hmm. feel that sense of security now, even if that partner mm-hmm. is really not a good fit for us and at times can be abusive. So how do you reconcile neediness, quote unquote, in a marriage? And what would you offer women who are, are dating and looking for partnership that they, yeah, there's going to be interdependence, but we don't want to approach from such a place of, of need that then we might be vulnerable to connecting mm-hmm. with someone who's not such a strong fit. Mm-hmm. I think what you just highlighted is so helpful and essential, uh, particularly for the population that you're talking about for women, single women that are in maybe a dating relationship or looking at potential partnership, marriage, et cetera. The way we start both in the writing, but also in our workshops is we spend a lot of time initially really blessing the way in which we've been created to need that that is such an essential part of any relationship, particularly dating partnership, marriage. Yes. That, that there's this, common thread that we were born to need. And and I think many of us from a very early age, there was some messaging that implied uh, that that need wasn't okay or isn't okay. And and so we 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 want to be intentional about unpacking some of that story. You know, there's a there's a fairly consistent uh, I would say intersection between our own story, uh, the our own family of origin story, and then our our dating relationship, our marriage relationship, partnership relationship, meaning that those intersect, particularly around need. So what is the message of need that we bring into this relationship? What was the message of need? And for many of us, and I, and I think it's not just gender specific, but I would say for, for most of us, there's this implied message that it's not okay to need. There's something wrong with me and needing. And, and part of that is driven by story. Part of that's driven by the way in which we Mm, we're responded to in our own needs. So I think part of the invitation is for us to simply initially be aware of what is my own messaging around need? What's, what's what we call this internal script? What do I say to myself about the need? Uh, I would say therapeutically for me and working with couples married or not, it, it, it is an, it is a common thread of struggle difficulty is how do we navigate need? Well, uh, when, when partners have need, when they're in a relationship, and they have different needs. And I, 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 we use that phrase often. How do we navigate the difference of need well? And, and for many couples, many women looking to be in or and are pursuing relationship, I think the struggle is initially, what am I saying? What, what do I actually believe about my own need? And is there kindness toward need? Is there blessing of need? Is there tenderness toward need? And that in and of itself, I think, can be very helpful to pay attention to. Yeah, I think what we share a lot of times in our workshops is, is a lot about family of origin and what messaging we received. And so even in a single, you know, person that's single right now, that's something that they can explore Mm -hmm. and really begin to pay attention to, you know, what were the things that I was able to receive? What were the things I was missing? What, what areas do I need to, um, 
you know, acknowledge and grow in and so that I can be more in touch with what I do need and what I am able to give. And so I think there's a health that comes with that. And especially in looking for someone that might help to fit that need for me. And so I think what we want to say is it's okay to need, that's how we were, that's how we were created. And, Mm -hmm. and so being able to understand where those things come from, I think is really important and the healthier we can be before we come into that marriage relationship can really be mm-hmm. a healthy start to that. We, we didn't have that, you know, we, our first 15 years of our marriage, we just kind of came into it and we weren't really <laughs> aware of what was happening and going on. And that's, I think that's why it's been so impactful for us in these maybe second 15 years where we're more in touch with, wow, what is it that I came into this marriage needing and not knowing that I, you know, not being aware of what that was and, and it made a big impact in how we relate to one another mm-hmm. now, but we kind of came in a little bit blind. And I think, wow, how awesome for yeah. women to be able to grow in their health and understand what's going on from their, their mm-hmm. own family and in mm-hmm. their own growing and their needs and all of those things and be able to bring those into a relationship. Mm-hmm. That's the health that we're hoping for. I love that you underscore that perhaps someone, and that was my story. I was single a lot longer than I anticipated or wanted to be, mm-hmm. but I tried to reframe that myself while I was in that space of the more knowledge I knew about how I'm wired and right. the ways that I need and look for and desire partnership. Yes. The more I understand that about myself, the better equipped I'll be to find right. a partner that aligns. And, right. you know, you mentioned the Gottmans and in the book, you talk so much about a lot of the research out there. And we do know that when we align in our values and we just have that similarity of the way of wanting to do life, it sounds so mm-hmm. simple, but it it's pretty profound, really. It makes the marriage so much easier because mm-hmm. we, do, we just have less to fight about. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think that the piece around, one more piece around the need is that for many of us, I think there is just this judgment that we hold internally around need. And that mm. I think is where shame kicks in. That's where there's this internal judgment. What's wrong with me? I mean, that's just mm. the fundamental question of shame. And, and, and we want to, I think, be intentional about how come we believe it's not okay to need? What is that driven by? What, what, what story, plural story uh, is connected to that? And I think that's part of the front end work that mm-hmm. for so many people, including us, that, that we weren't that aware of, nor, nor was it, nor were we invited to even consider that. So mm-hmm. I think sometimes there's this sense I have to inhibit or limit or hide my need. Uh, and, and yet the way in which we connect is uh, around the opportunity and the privilege to be what the other needs. Mm. Yeah. And you speak to shame and you devote a chapter to shame. And I was struck when I was reading it, that it can be so fundamental to so many, honestly, when I'm reading at points, I was like, oh, it's amazing anyone can ever have a happy marriage because you know, you've up so, there's so many ways to have yes. the shame play out or the uh, fear you spoke to. And then the fear, we're yeah. going to freeze or we're going to flee. We're yeah. going to fight. I mean, there's so, it's a happy ending. The book does provide you with a lot of encouragement, <laughs> but it, when you really unpack all the many ways that our, our shame can rear its head and then cause us to doubt one another, to be critical of one another, to be critical of ourselves. So let's speak to shame because I think it's something that we're becoming more aware of as a society due to workshops like the ones that you're involved with at the Allender Center and in other contexts. Shame is really something I don't think 
anyone can avoid it. I think it's sadly mm-hmm. part of the human condition, no matter how great your family was. We mm-hmm. are left with a little bit of this, and maybe if it's because we're in a fallen world. But what do you think about shame in the context of a marriage and partnership? Mm. Well, I think both of us are so appreciative that you're intentional about wandering together around that particular category of shame because it is so common. Yeah. And I think that was part of the awareness in the, the preparing to write was my yellow page notes, you know, that, that shame was such a theme. Yeah. And and it's often it, it is talked about and written and and Brene Brown has done wonderful work for us culturally around understanding the impact of shame relationally. There just hasn't been a lot of writing around how does it though impact partnership and marriage, and and for us I think that is a, a deep passion and even calling I think to be intentional. Let's talk about shame even though we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to acknowledge, and yet that's that's actually how shame grows is in silence and in secrecy is that when we don't talk about it, acknowledge it, it actually grows. And so we're the, the opening, uh, the door to it, I think is so helpful for couples. Uh, it's, it's the undercurrent, I think, for so many couples in their struggle, uh, in the tension, and they're not really even aware of that's what it is. I, I think we think there's such a sense that shame wreaks, it can wreak havoc. Uh, it's part of what disrupts us. And the, the, the most helpful way, I think, understanding shame is that shame is really about judgment. It's about there's a sense of what's wrong with me or what's wrong with you. Not, not around guilt is usually associated with, oh, you, you know, I feel bad for something that I did. Shame is I am bad. And, and again, go back to story. I think that's what mm-hmm. is so helpful is where, where, where and in what way did shame develop in your own story? Uh, where was it implied and or spoken, named, whether in your own abuse story, trauma story, uh, emotional disconnect story, where did shame take root? Uh, because we all have, and I so appreciate you naming that, we all do have this residue. It lives with us. We cannot extinguish it completely, but we can certainly work with it and be what the other needs, especially in their place of shame. When, when our partner, spouse experiences shame, that's to me one of the most beautiful parts of what partnership and marriage is. It's meant to be, we can be something for the other that they can't be for themselves. We can remind the other of what's true. So it, it, it's, it's this undercurrent, it's sneaky. Uh, it can grow if we choose to not acknowledge it, but it, it has this core sense of judgment. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? And that in and of itself creates this, I think this disconnect or even chasm in, in relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think what you named too, that we are so hesitant to talk about shame. We're hesitant to talk about need or anger Mm -hmm. or, you know, all of these issues that you said, "Ah, I find it so hard. How do you even have a happy marriage? But (laughs) I think the, I think the underlying current is that if the more we become aware Mm -hmm. of what shame is and how it is playing out in my life, in our marriage, um, then it loses its power. And mm-hmm. so I think when we don't talk about these things is when they have a lot of power and they're impacting us in mm-hmm. the present moment on a daily basis. And we just aren't even aware of where they're coming from. And so we we have no ability to address them. And I think that's what we lived with for the first 15 years of our mm-hmm. marriage. Things were just happening and we didn't, and we didn't know, know what we were was trying happening. to put out the fire. And, <laughs> right. and But we didn't know what was happening. And when we finally were able to go to the root, in the core of some of these things, and especially shame, because it it is prevalent in everyday life, mm-hmm. we were able to address them and be able to be tender toward them and be able to recognize them in one another. Um, and so mm. even because so, sometimes I don't see what's happening in 
And I don't know the shame that's going on, but Steve can recognize it in me and I can recognize it in him. And we can be able to be gentle to it and say, Hey, this, I think this is happening for you right now, you know? And so having more awareness, I think is our goal. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and really that's about it. I mean, it's, there's not a lot of, you know, quote unquote work beyond that, that has to be done because the more aware we are of what's happening, the more we can address it in a different way. Mm -hmm. And I think one last thing in that is that, that we often believe we can overcome shame and isolation. And, Mm. and yet that is not at all true. It it is this illusion of hope. I think we hold that we can overcome our own shame on our own in isolation. We, we need the other, whomever the other is Mm -hmm. friend, partner, spouse, therapist, community, community. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's, you know, Kurt Thompson's work, the soul of shame, like it's phenomenal the way he invites us into community. And I think that's what marriage is meant to be. It's that, that we cannot, I cannot overcome my shame without Lisa. I, we cannot overcome shame without the other. And that is the, I think the core struggle for so many couples, wherever they are in their relational moments, it's that we need the other to be able to remember what is true about ourselves. Have you heard? You can now listen to my book, Single is the New Black. Don't wear white till it's right. As you know, I wrote the book I wish had been available to me when I was single. So obviously, it's not about how to snag a man. Rather, it's all about how to stay strong amidst single shaming and remain true to yourself and never settle for anything less than an extraordinary relationship. Find it on Audible or iTunes. And for a free sample, check out Chapter 11 of Single is the New Black in Episode 145 of Love and Life. And you spoke to attachment early on in the book, too, which I think is a topic that, again, is another one that's becoming more understood. And I certainly have a lot of the women in my community who are aware they're fearful that they have anxious attachment styles from their family of origin. And I think that plays into then the piece of shame that you spoke to in the book as well, like this fundamental question, am I worthy of love? Am I actually lovable? Mm -hmm. And yes, in a marriage where you, like you talked about the next 15 years of your marriage, where you are more aware and able to see one another and even detect, oh, I think this is coming from that shame place that both of us have. And and to be gentle with one another in that moment yeah. instead of being triggered and having mm-hmm. these this responses that we typically do if we're not really aware of some of that, like you said, even not being able to name it. And I think the attachment issue is one that is fearful for people because they think, well, I don't know that I can ever repair this. It was foundational to my development when it was out of my control. How do you help someone who maybe has that fear whether you're talking about individual clients or couples, that my attachment style is is pretty hardwired at this point. And I do have this very deep concern that I'm really just not worthy of love. Hmm. Again, appreciate that you're highlighting what is core for so many of us, if not all of us, is the way in which our attachment style impacts our relational dynamic. And whether that's with friends, whether that's with parents, whether that's with a, a significant other, Yes, for the most part, you know, attachment style is hardwired, but I also like to, we use the language of relational style that can be a, a helpful reframe, not that it has to be that, but I think uh, the way we live relationally 
helps us again if we have an awareness of of what is the undercurrent of that what is that connected to and uh, again the anxious attachment piece you know is, is driven often by fear it's that that if i actually show myself reveal myself the other will turn away or there will be this inconsistency or they'll be emotionally or physically unavailable and so there's a high level of ambivalence that can occur in the anxious attachment style which i think we want to really highlight of course there is because again, let's stay connected to story. It's a protective feature. It's not meant to say, don't be anxious or, or don't be fearful. It's meant to be, how can the other, whomever the other is, be a part of that shift and that change? That It's hard to, again, overcome anxiety and isolation. It's hard to overcome ambivalence and isolation. We, we need relationship. We need partnership. We need someone, someone that is the other that helps us be aware that you're not defined by your anxiety. You're not defined by the fear. I, I get to play a part in creating safety. So we look for safe partners. We are intentional, and I love your work around that, of, of how we might be intentional about who is the safe other? How do I allow, and is there room for me to be who I am in the midst of this relationship with the other? I think also, you know, when we do know we have maybe a, an anxious attachment or an insecure attachment, Instead of just saying, oh, that's my lot. Okay, now it's going to be difficult. But to maybe, again, be really gentle with ourselves and explore, mm. well, why was that? I mean, there were reasons for that. And to be able to understand that and to come to it with kindness and to, and gentleness and to say, hey, what was my story? And maybe, maybe at that point, a trusted friend or maybe you work with somebody, a counselor or someone that can help you unpack that and find out what was my story and and not be afraid of it because the more awareness that we grow, the stronger we will become because we understand it's more integrated. Mm. And I love how Kurt Thompson in his book of soul of desire, his second book or his latest book, book, um, he talks about how we were created for, um, for beauty and goodness. And I think no matter where we came from, no matter what our story was, we were created for beauty and goodness. And we don't know how that's all going to play out, but I think it's tempting to believe that, Oh, you know, I had a hard story. And so, I guess I can't be in the game or, you know, Mm. I'm out. I don't have what it takes. I'm not lovable. And which is not true. And God, God uses, he's created each of us for beauty and goodness. And we all have our own story and to not be afraid of that story and to be able to go into it and say, Hey, let me understand this better. Let me grow in my understanding and my kindness toward it so that I can be all that I was meant to be and not focus so much on maybe getting prepared for that partner, but just being who I am, because mm-hmm. that's, that's the strength that we bring to any relationship. I uh, echo your concern, Lisa, hearing that this is, I think sometimes people, I think these models can be very useful for understanding our experiences that feel very nebulous and sometimes hard to concretize. But I also worry that sometimes these models then provide people put themselves in a box. Well, I have anxious attachment. That means I'll always struggle instead of looking for that as a useful place to start and then to work on a healing journey. And uh, then we integrate hope. Then we integrate Mm -hmm. belief. We, we, we believe that healing, we see our physical body heals. We can know that our emotional Mm -hmm. selves can heal as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that's some of the work you're doing with your, the couples you work with, because And I know you mentioned some in the book where maybe one of the partners is very afraid due to the shame to reveal Mm -hmm. sexual abuse in the past or something along those Mm -hmm. lines. So entering partnership without having that full vulnerability and 
Hmm. clarity, which I understand people go, I don't want to share this because again, the fear comes up because if I do, will I still be loved? Right. 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 And that, that is a fundamental, I think just for all of us, a fundamental fear that if I actually reveal something about myself, you'll turn away, uh, which is what shame wants Mm -hmm. us to believe that if I reveal who I am in the midst of being with you, no matter how long, how many years we've been together in whatever context, there's still that core fear. Mm-hmm. And yet, when the other stays present, when there's a turning towards rather than a turning away, mm-hmm. it does remind us that even in the midst of your flawedness and your brokenness, in your imperfection. But I, I do think that 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 is for many of us just a an overwhelming sense of no, 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 thanks. Uh, I, I'd rather not. Uh, I'd rather not. You know this part of me, mm-hmm. and so it, it is a protective feature, but it it limits and prohibits us. I think from the the true intimacy that we long for, mm-hmm. but, but really highlighting the, the commonality for each of us is I think really important that, that we choose at times to not reveal because of the fear and the terror that you'll turn away. And you had a quote and I wrote it down from Adler about empathy. Yeah. Mm. So he describes empathy as seeing with the eyes of another, listening with the ears of another and feeling with the heart of another And I think empathy in the context of deep intimacy, where we do have that safety that you spoke to, that can be a healing measure regarding Mm. our shame. If I feel Mm. that I'm fully understood by my most intimate relationship, and I don't expect that from everyone. I don't expect that from coworkers. I don't expect that even from close friends (laughs) all the time. But with our person, with our partner, I think to develop that connection that you speak to in the book and that deep intimacy that I think most of us, probably 99.9% of us desire, that empathy piece is really key. Oh, so key. And, and that is so, thank you again for highlighting that, that, that we, we cannot overcome shame without empathy, right. uh, that, that it's an essential ingredient, which again, that's, I mean, Brene Brown's work, like mm. empathy is the antidote of shame. And, and much of my therapeutic work and much of what we talk about in our workshops around emotional intimacy it's the foundational emotional component it is empathy and empathy is is really being able to feel into literally that's how we define it mm, to feel mm-hmm, into the other mm-hmm. yeah. uh, the capacity and ability to be able to stay present to what it is that the other feels and, and again where where so many couples struggle and where individuals struggle is if that wasn't modeled for me if that wasn't mm. part of my story uh, i'm not so sure how how to offer empathy and and where again, where so many couples struggle, no matter where they're in that journey, it's, is, well, my, my partner or he or she doesn't really have empathy or they don't really reveal empathy. And, and where we want to be mm, playful in moments like that is I think for many of us, empathy is underdeveloped. It's not Mm -hmm. as if we don't have the capacity because Mm -hmm. if we were in a room with infants Mm -hmm. and many of maybe your listeners have this experience, but like, let's just imagine there's a room of, you know, 10 young children, infants. And when one of them cries, what tends to happen? They all turn toward the other. There's this innate capacity that we are born with to turn towards pain, mm. to turn towards hurt. And yet, if in our own family of origin story, we were turned away from or empathy mm. wasn't revealed or offered to us when we were in pain or struggling, it's hard to bring that into a relationship. And so the awareness piece that we keep highlighting is, I think, it's essential. It's a key to being able to be aware of how is empathy modeled for you? Yeah. And I think unfortunately in a lot of marriages, it, it's wildly vacant. You know, it's, Mm. it's not something that 
is intuitive because a lot of times in a marriage relationship, there's, there's triggers that are going on. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're feeling like this. Well, now I'm feeling like this because, <laughs> and so now something else is triggered in me. And so I don't go straight to empathy. Like, I don't think we right. naturally go straight to empathy, you know, except for when there's like a, you know, cute baby bunny or a little goat or something, you know, that's cute. Like we, when, when we're being triggered, when we're in a, like in a highly charged emotional situation and our spouse is being triggered by something, it's not natural for us to all, all of a sudden feel empathetic. We might feel disappointed. We might feel frustrated. Why aren't you who I thought you were? Why aren't you being what I need? Why aren't you, you know, there's so many other things. Not that, that, that happens for us. Not that that no. happens for us. No. <laughs> not to see here. There's a whole realm of emotions that's going on. And so we really have to, we really had to pay attention to where is empathy? How can I even access it right now? Yep. And then how can we mm. help couples to figure out their dance and, and what really triggers them? And when, when do you have to set that aside? Because right now what your spouse needs is empathy. Or how can you verbalize that to your spouse? What I need is empathy right now. Or or for your people that are single right now, how do they seek that from a friend or someone that's close to them or a community? How can they access, okay, here's what I'm here's what I'm going through and here's what I need right now. I really need an empathetic ear. I need you to be present for me. Mm-hmm. We use that language with each other. You know, I just had a recent trip to visit my parents and they're really struggling. My dad has Alzheimer's right now. And so there's a lot of trigger of emotion. And I was really triggered being home and I'm driving home and I called Steve and I said, okay, I just need you to be really present when I get home because I I feel like hmm. my parents couldn't be present with me. There's so much going on. I, I, I felt triggered to some things from my childhood and I was just kind of a mess. And and I, I literally called and said, when I get home, I need you to be present. Okay. <laughs> which is, is so Which different. is newer for me. So yeah, but different. it was like, I knew what I needed mm-hmm. and I knew, and, and he was able to say, okay, now I know what you need. Cause so many times, you know, I would maybe come home upset and he, he doesn't know. And so we miss each other and it turns into this mm. whole big thing, but. But it goes back to the core piece of need, like what we were talking about that to be intentional. Being about able to know what need you need and be able to it. add words to it yeah. is so helpful because. It's taken us decades You'd think, you know, you're living in the same house, you would know, but you just don't. It's, it takes a, a lot of intentional conversation, and, you know, being attuned to one another. And if you aren't attuned to yourself, mm-hmm. if you don't take time to tune to one another, it doesn't just happen naturally, you know? And so that was, that was just a, a situation where I was able to put that into words and he was able to be present for me. And, and it was a much better, you know, it's much coming better home reunion. But I think, um, I think we assume sometimes that, oh, I'll do the right thing or you'll do the right thing of what I need. And, and it just doesn't happen. And then, and then couples are a little bit um, confused. Like, what, why isn't this working? What? Yeah. I thought we loved each other. I thought we, you know, right. and, and it just, we all need to be taught. We need to in, trained and then practice. Mm. That's such a great concrete example of mm-hmm. you being able to identify what I need and then having the, the wherewithal to be able to ask for it. Because like you said, oftentimes we miss each other because we're not able Mm -hmm. to recognize this is what I need in this moment. And then even having the script or the the words to say, this is how I I need to ask for this and invite my partner to be able to offer that to me and support me in this. I like, I wrote down that, that you just spoke to a moment ago, the empathy is about feeling into. And I like the words because I think when we leave a conversation like this, sometimes the takeaways will be those those little turns of phrases that are 
accessible and we can stick with them. And I love, love that feeling into versus fixing you spoke to so often mm-hmm. our yeah. partner comes with a need and because of the love and with all the, the, the most pure intention, we want to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. And for Lisa to be able to say, no, actually what I need right now is just for you to hold space for me to be here mm-hmm. in this moment. And then I, maybe you helped her fix something later, but in that first part of the process to be mm-hmm. fully seen, fully heard and, and feel that empathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's an invitation. I think Lisa's invitation was uh, that, to this, what we call this right brain to right brain response. Mm. You know, emotion, when we are feeling sad, disappointed, hurt, frustrated, even shame, it's it, that's housed in this, well, for simplicity, like our right brain. And yet yeah. our partner, the other, sometimes responds with a left brain kind of logic and reasoning. Yes. We, we, we think that talking the other out of what they feel is helpful. And, <laughs> and it's and we playfully would say, ne- it's never helpful. Right brain yeah. always trumps left brain, always. So when our partner, the other, is is in a state of distress, hurt, sadness, Lisa was feeling. I mean, I think you were feeling really sad about your experience, and mm. and yet to be able to to say, can 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 I be met with a right brain response? I think that's part of what mm. need is: is I need presence, and I need emotion, uh, mm. and yet sometimes we think that the way to help the other is to talk them out, to use logic, to use reasoning. Well what are you upset about that for? That's no big deal. Or why are you thinking that way or feeling that way? It's not that bad. You know, we think that that's a helpful relational response and unfortunately it just perpetuates this disconnect. So it's a playful, I think even imagery around right brain to right brain. Like, can we be intentional about Mm -hmm. how we respond to the other in this emotional state? Mm -hmm. And I think it does, it gets confusing for the one that says, I am doing, I am helping you. I am doing what you want, you know, and then it's, then you get defensive and then pretty soon you can't have this conversation anymore because everybody's triggered. And so to bring it back down to that level, like, okay, what is it that we actually really need? What is it that we're actually really feeling? And again, that just doesn't, it doesn't come naturally to most people. I mean, maybe there's some beautiful people out there that have this wonderful, you know, empathetic household where they just go to that response. But I think we're also focused, you know, on ourselves and, and how, Mm -hmm. how does that impact me? And then now I'm defensive. And so it just gets convoluted. And and just one more thought on that too, is that we can sometimes feel or believe that empathy isn't enough. And and yet it is Mm -hmm. when we are the Mm -hmm. one that receives empathy, it is enough. And so it's Mm -hmm. hard to trust. I think for so many couples, it's hard to trust that empathy can be enough in the midst of pain, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of sadness, in the midst of shame. I love that right brain, left brain. I'd never thought about it in this context. And I do think, and I'm, I, I'm a cognitive. I love my CBT. I love Great. the, the yeah. cognitive orientation. So, and that's very left brain. And I think mm-hmm. we have a very left brain society. Our academic experience yes. is very much left brain. So we are, that's our default mode probably very often. That's at the ready. So. And that yeah. right brain is the part that we need to cultivate more, I believe. Mm-hmm. 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 For sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, but- and for me, you know, that's my story because we, I grew up in a home where we didn't have a lot of emotion and we did a lot of talking out of like, I think you're fine. You have this and this, this is what you need. And so I went into our marriage trying to talk Steve out of all kinds of things, you know, like you're fine. We're good. This is fine, <laughs> you know, and, and it didn't go well and I could never... <laughs> You know, I just couldn't figure cool. out, like, I did everything right. What's, what's trying to problem? do the right thing? What's your problem? Why do you, why do you feel that way? And now, yeah. even when I do access that empathy and say, wow, that sounds really hard, you know, like for years, you know, if something 
maybe with our kids was happening. And I would say, oh, well, you know, kids are kids and this, and, and he would feel a certain feeling. And now when I've been able to respond in empathy and say, well, that must be really hard. It doesn't feel like enough for me, right? but for him, right. he's like, that's exactly, it that's is. all I needed. That's yeah. great. That's what yeah. I needed. And, and sit with me for a minute and say, wow, that's hard. And I think too, Lisa, when I think about my, my effort, because I've done the same thing, I think most of us have, it also is coming from a pure place of like, well, I don't trust that empathy is enough. And I want to use my left brain to help fix this and solve right. this problem. Yes. And the fear is that if I don't give you something tangible, then I've done nothing. And then you could spiral and things would get right. worse. And I'd yeah. feel responsible for that too. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's amazing how powerful empathy is. Yeah. And I, I want to speak to some of the tangibles that you bring up as well. And you borrowed from the Gottman's research, which of course is wonderful because they have so many concrete, very easy to remember, subtle differences in behavior and interaction that really speak to those essentials of connection. You talked about availability, attunement, understanding, empathy, as we've spoken to, consistency, curiosity and play as we've spoken to as well. But I'm struck by, um, you give a, 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 an example in the beginning of the book where one of you would be really locked into something, whether it's reading text messages or on your phone, and then that bid for attention and small gestures like that, having the wherewithal to go, okay, I'm really locked into this, but I need to set this down for a moment, set the paper aside, turn off the TV and honor my partner's bid for attention because that plays into all the things we've been talking about. It reinforces, here's my empathy because you you obviously have a need to discuss something with me. You want to show me something. It reinforces the the point that you are worthy of being acknowledged. And of course, we could go back to, again, t- attachment with a, an infant who isn't responded to might mm-hmm. feel that I'm not worthy of being attended to. And so we can mm-hmm. take these very s- subtle and not that hard to do really behavioral shifts in our marriage and deepen connection in much more profound ways than we probably even realize. And I think what's interesting is it's not as much about recognizing those moments and then responding to our spouse. Mm -hmm. It's more about recognizing the moments when they aren't responding and the Mm. anxiety that rises up in our body and where that Mm. comes from. And then discussing Mm -hmm. that later, like when you are distracted and I'm trying to share something with you, I feel unimportant. I feel hurt. I feel abandoned. Mm. It's more about being able to, because you know, you can't respond perfectly every time and you can't say, Oh, I learned this. So now I have to do this every time. But it's more just again about awareness when it doesn't happen. Where do I go? Do I go to shame? Do I, do I say, wow, you're not responding to me. And now I feel really bad about myself. And so that's an awareness that I think we help ourselves and Mm. others to recognize. I think those bids are I mean, it's one of the most vulnerable expressions again in marriage. It's when we make a bid and bids are very simple and complex. I mean, a, a bid to go for a walk, uh, a, a bid to be intimate, you know, and, and anything in between that there's this, there's this offering of self. Uh, I think a bid is meant to communicate. I, I, I choose you. Uh, I want to be with you. Uh, I miss you. Whatever form that takes. Uh, it's a, such a vulnerable expression. Because the other, as we know, has the choice to say, no, thanks, or might not respond or ignores it or minimizes it or too tired. I don't want to. No, no, no. Like when there's a no, sometimes when there's a refusal 
to respond well to the bid, that that's where some of the disconnect relation I think can take root. So it's for I think for each of us to be aware of the vulnerability, it requires the other to actually knock on the door and hey, do you want to come out and play? I, I think if we if we stay connected to story again, just from a child's perspective, it is one of the most vulnerable things we do, no matter what our age. We go to our friend's house, knock on the door, hey, do you want to come out and play? Like that's a that's a fairly risky invitation because the other simply could just say no. And, and then what does that feel like when it, when a refusal to engage uh, is a common pattern? Mm, that's where some of the disconnect occurs. So I think bids can be really simple. They're, they're meant to be, I, I want to be with you. I miss you. I want to spend time with you. I like being with you. That's what a bid is meant to communicate. It's essential to friendship. And I think it's essential to any kind of relational romantic partnership in any way. I'd love to connect with you via my weekly newsletter. Joining the Love and Life email list ensures you're the first to know everything going on in the Love and Life family. You'll receive insider perk pricing for consultations and events, and it's the best way to keep in touch when I do what the research suggests is very healthy and take breaks from social media. Subscribe on my website, loveandlifemedia.com. And as a bonus, you'll get my free Empowered Dating Playbook. As we wrap up, what are some of the other subtle shifts, adjustments that, that couples can make? You know, we spoke to play here and there, and I think that is really key. I remember years ago, I don't know, in my marital therapy class, my master's degree or what, yeah. I remember it was one of those his needs, her needs kind of mm. concerns. And that the idea that men in particular need someone to, to pal around with, that they want in their partnership that that playmate, not in the playboy sense, but in that playmate. Right, right. And uh, so sometimes just a little thing like my husband being like, you want to go see this Avengers movie or Marvel? Like that's like comics, that's not my thing. But I'm like, yeah, sure. Because yeah. he wants a pal to go to the movies mm. with. So part of those sorts of, Again, just these pieces that we can integrate into our marriage that really aren't that big of a deal, hmm. but they have a huge impact if we fail to notice, like you were saying, Lisa, the response that we have when these pieces are, are missed. Right, hmm. right. I think we could stay connected to that for so many of us, no matter where we are in relationship, that, that contentment and the, the sense of fulfillment in relationship is based upon friendship. Mm. And that's another piece of Gottman's work that, that people in a content marriage would say we're good friends. Yeah. Well, well, how do we cultivate friendship? We play together. Mm-hmm. And, and that, if, if you're wondering, I think where, where, and this is where we tend to land in the ending of our workshops too. It's, we talk about play. What does play look like in your partnership, in your relationship, in your marriage? Uh, where are those rituals of connection? Uh, what is the resistance to play? Where are we cautious, ambivalent to play? Sometimes we see play as frivolous or a privilege that only if we have time to play. And yet mm. uh, it is essential because we're all born with this innate capacity to play. We are all born with this innate ability to play. And it, it's actually what connects us. So I love that story that you just shared about your, your marriage that, yeah, we have different play styles. How do we navigate that well? Again, going back to difference, but how are we intentional about it? So much of our work is is that word intentionality. Can we be a bit more intentional around, around play? Where are our rituals of connection? Where, where, 
Where's the Tuesday morning, Friday afternoon on the rockers on the porch, the walk on the driveway, the watching of a movie, the having a meal together, a glass of wine, a cup of coffee. It, it's not that the list is endless, but it, it is that that it it's this intentional choice to say, again, I choose you, I choose us. I think that's what play is meant to be and what it reveals uh, in our marriage. And I think the rituals of connection slash play also connect us in an ongoing process because I think it can be really disruptive when we are having conflict or we do feel hurt or we might feel like, I don't want to play with you. I don't want to be with you right now. You know, but if there's this ongoing ritual, you know, like we have walking our driveway or we have coffee in the morning, it's ha- it just keeps happening. And so it's not about, I don't know, do I want to do this or not? You know, because it's already kind of built into to our daily life. And so I think couples that have those rituals where they kind of know that they're going to be together in certain, even tiny moments that that can help carry us through when there's times of difficulty and times of frustration and hurt because it's something that's just part of our day. And so I think that ritual of it Mm. is just really Mm -hmm. important. I like that. The ritual, the being intentional. This has been such a great conversation. I have more notes, but I know that we uh, need to wrap up. I wanted to uh, invite you to share with my listeners how they can find you, how they can buy the book. And then if you had any other parting words you'd like to leave with them. Hmm. Well, thank you. And I want to say thank you again for yeah, the conversation. So I really enjoyed this time with you. Uh, we have a website that has all of our resources available. Uh, it's called the reconnectinstitute.com. Uh, and in, on there, we have our online workshop. We offer in-person workshops. There's access to the book. And we we also have a podcast called the Reconnect Marriage Podcast. So there's all the links and information on that website for, for listeners if they would like further information. Great. Thanks. And are, yeah, any thank social you. media? Yeah, and social media uh, on Instagram at Reconnect Marriage is where people That's can right. find us. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, we really appreciate being on on here with you and and appreciate the work that you're doing with women and couples and families. And it's just really good work. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Of course. Good to be with you. The love and life hack for this week is I want to borrow Steve and Lisa's conception of empathy, feeling into whether you're struggling to rebuild deep intimacy in your partnership or trying to maintain or cultivate more intense connection to friends and family members, we can always go back to empathy, lean into how powerful it is in our relationships and feel into. Thanks as always for joining us today. If you have just a moment to head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and just a few sentences of review, that would be wonderful. It helps others find the program and join the Love and Life family. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen anderson Abril, And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abram.